Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. At the time of this recording, it is Labor Day of 2016, and what better labor than making beer and talking about beer? It's a labor of love. It is a labor of love, yes. <laughs> Anyways, welcome to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. I'm George. We are A Nice Place to Brew, and we are a uh, homebrew team in the uh, suburbs around the Chicagoland area. We like to make beer. We like to drink beer, talk about beer, and all things beer, as the show's description says. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we do. <laughs> so the first thing we tend to do is talk about beer, and we talk about the ones that we have drank in the supposed-to-be-month, but, you know, however long it's been since we've recorded recently. It's, it's about a month. About a month, yeah. all right. So we, um, you know, in that time, I took a trip down to Kentucky and uh, sampled a bunch of beers down there, and one brewery kind of stood out for me. It's West Sixth Brewing, which is actually not easy to say. What town is this in? It's in Lexington. Lexington. Okay. Yeah. yeah. My wife has some family down there, so we were we were down there and stopped by a brewery called West Sixth Brewing. Uh, had a couple of them. The first one I had was called Pay It Forward Cocoa Porter. Oh, that sounds fantastic. You'd think so. Uh, oh, yeah. Not so much, huh? It was. Seven percent uh, by volume, and made up of two roll pale chocolate malt, Munich malt, Cara Munich, and another one called Special B that I'm not familiar with. It's completely Cascade hops, and uses the adjunct of roasted cocoa nibs. And the yeast is a house ale yeast. It's a, a special strain that they have. So. All that seems to add up to should be delicious beer. Yeah. And I honestly thought it would be. And, and when I tried it, though, the roasted notes of the porter and the roasted notes of the cocoa kind of clashed with each other a little bit. Huh. Yeah. And so I see where they were going. And, and I think that, uh, you know, fine-tuning that a little bit could... Uh, make this a really good beer because you know a cocoa infused porter has a lot of potential to it so i think you know when i tried it i could definitely taste those porter notes like i said it was roasty it was malty it was everything you're looking for in a porter but then layered on top of that and especially in the aftertaste you get this sense of a you know overly roasty almost on the verge of burnt type flavor to it. It's oh, unf- it was unfortunate, but okay. that's what I was okay. tasting. And, and so I don't know if maybe that was, you know, that batch, maybe the cocoa nibs were over roasted or anything like that, but that's kind of how it came through for me. Huh? Yeah. No, I, I, I share those, the, like each of the thoughts that you just mentioned, I, th- I think just reading that description, I would have, I would have not, walked i would have ran towards the bar to right ask for a glass of that absolutely and you would think i mean a porter being a lighter the kind of a lighter side of the dark beer scale mm-hmm. it's would be a pretty good base for something like cocoa nibs to add you know some pretty good flavor to it i'm i'm really surprised that that didn't come over better i know i know and i i felt the same way i just it just didn't 
didn't go together on, on my palate the way I was hoping for. I'm trying to think of a chocolate porter off the top of my head, and I'm coming up short, but I feel like I've you know, had that in yeah. some avenue before. I always find that the chocolate ones are always part of, uh, um, you know, more more of a stout thing than it is a porter thing. It is. It is. That's true. And so maybe maybe there's a reason to that. Maybe that the roasted notes of the the porter, you know, kind of don't don't play well with the chocolate in the in the in 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 those beers and whatnot. I, I don't know. That's well. That's a good note for us right now. We do. We are on the cusp of uh, of making a porter over the next couple of months. So we are. Yeah, yes. That'll be one adjunct that I think we'll just leave to the side. I'm going to talk about my first one, and I. I am going to express some similar sentiments that uh, that George had mentioned about uh, the first beer I have uh, to review. Um, the story with this beer is I had this beer at a uh, at a new um, new bar slash restaurant up in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Uh, the place is called Tokens and Tankards, and it's Tokens and Tankards is exactly what it sounds like. It is a um, it is a restaurant slash bar with nothing but craft beer and has a small room of old school video games. Oh. Not to the scale that we've seen in other places, but a small room nonetheless, maybe maybe two or three times the size of this room. You know, enough for a couple dozen machines. So nothing like a certain horse-bound poltergeist that we know? Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah, far, far from that scale. All right. But great concept. Nothing but craft beer on the menu. It's 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 well worth a trip. Well worth a trip. Anyway, um, the uh, they had a number of beers available, and they had two different Scotch ales available on their menu. And if you've listened to previous shows, <laughs> George and I speak very glaringly about Scotch ales as being a being a go to style for both of us. I found a uh, a Scotch ale. Uh, on tap there that was called Old Chub. If you give me a second, I'm going to pull up the uh, description of this. Old Chub. Yes, Old Chub. Huh. Actually, sounds familiar to me. I wonder if I had that down at the beer market at all. It's you know, it's it's possible. Yeah. Old Chub is made by Oscar Blues Brewery out of Colorado. Is a Scottish strong ale brewed with hearty amounts of seven different malts, including crystal, crystal and chocolate malts, and a smidge of U.S. and U.K. hops. Old Chub also gets a dash of beechwood smoked grains uh, imported from Hamb- uh, Bamberg, Germany, one of the world's greatest smoked beers. So there's a lot of good stuff going on with this. Yeah, there is. Seven grains, smoked beer, uh Rooted in Germany and two different uh, two different continents of hops, D- seems so, seems like a recipe for a pretty fantastic beer. So it was a smoked Scotch ale. Yeah, nice. According to this, yeah. Okay. And I have to admit, the taste of this beer was a bit of a swing and a miss. Okay. And I'm not quite sure why. I you would think seven different uh, malts would create a lot of good sweetness, which Scotch ales are very much known for. I, I don't know exactly what those seven grains were, but there wasn't as much of that distinct sweetness that you look for in a Scotch ale. Okay, it was a little bit lacking in that category. It does list that it's that it comes in at eight percent ABV, and I'll trust that's probably accurate, but just a little bit too lacking on the sweetness because kind of left me wanting a little bit more out of this. Did it have more of more alcohol flavor than you were looking for? 
Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, you know, so that many different grains, you can easily overdo the complexity. And, and I and I think that's probably what happened here. Yeah. Huh. So, so maybe not a beer I would have again, but will I go back to tokens and tankards? Absolutely. Yeah, makes sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. So what else have you had? Well, keeping with that same theme and with the same brewery, that West Sixth Brewing, um, I had another one that, so they don't ride up on me here, I will say that I really liked. And actually, that's very true. It was called um, West Sixth Belgian Style Blonde. No you know, fancy name there. It's just Belgian Style Blonde. This is a seasonal one they do. It's a Belgian yeast with Hollowtow and Wilmet uh, hops in it. ABV is a low five point five percent. So it's a for a Belgian. That's really low. Well, it's a Belgian style blonde. It's not a Belgian. It's oh, it's a okay. it's a blonde ale made with Belgian hops and some Belgian notes to it to give those Belgiany flavors, but not in a Belgian style beer. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, IBUs are are a pretty low uh, twenty, and so it's you know it, it kind of tipped my hand a little bit, but it's it is a blonde ale, so it's nice and light, and those Belgiany notes in there, you get that kind of banana kind of notes that you get with a Belgian, and you have uh, the nice crisp light blonde ale. It all came together very well. And this this one was one that I would definitely go back to. It's it's definitely a seasonal one. I think they only do it during the summer, and it is uh, it's it's definitely a somewhat reminiscent but unique flavor um, to uh, to a Belgian style beer that you like if you were looking for a Belgian single or double or anything like that. Now, typically when you're looking at a Belgian sing- single, even a single. Five percent would be on the extreme on low, low scale, side. Yeah, yeah you're looking sure. at like six and a half, seven percent typically. Yeah. So it's uh, you know, that's where the whole Blondale aspect comes in. So it's a more of a sessionable beer that is still has those those Belgian notes to it. How were the hops? Was it a hoppy beer? It was not a very hoppy beer. Like I said, IBUs were oh. only twenty, um, and they were incorporated pretty well into the rest of the um the flavor i mean both well hollow tile is a noble hop will met is not but they're both very flavor driven hops rather than you know bitterness driven hops interesting i like belgian beers this i mean being light on the hops and being light on the grain bill you're breaking kind of like the cardinal rules of being <laughs> a belgian yeah i think it, the main thing that makes it a belgian style blonde is that belgian yeast because you're going to get oh, those banana okay. esters and okay. you're going to get the those belgiany flavors out of the yeast. Yeah. So, it's one of those cross I um contaminates the word I have in my head, but that's wrong. Um you know, like uh like a cross section or uh it's 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 it, bridging the gap between two different styles. You right, blonde right. and you belgian, you kind of mash them up and you see what happens and in this case it, it worked pretty well. Nice. So, I would give that one a try. Yeah, yeah. it was good. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going from one beer that was a swing and a miss to a beer that was anything but. Mm-hmm. As I've spoken on previous shows, I uh, 
am very fond of both scotch ales and dark beers in general for many of the reasons that I like scotch ales. Uh, the good sweetness to it, higher on the ABV scale, just you know, just a good all-around all drink. I celebrated a birthday recently, and uh, George, myself, and his wife, uh, after having some food, uh, went to a place in, Nap- in uh, Naperville called World of Beer. <laughs> now, if you're not in the Chicagoland area... Um, I believe World of Beer is a chain. You can, pro- I believe, you can find World of Beer in, in other cities. Uh, World of Beer is a great place. It has a lot of different taps, and it has bottles probably well into the hundreds available for whatever your taste buds may uh, uh, may be looking for at that time. We are also, I mean, and the timing for uh, for being at World of Beer couldn't have been better also because we're just kind of on the cusp of the fall season and fall flavors and fall things, Halloween, are starting to show themselves. And World of Beer had a beer on tap called Warlock from Southern Tier Brewing, which is a imperial pumpkin stout. Upon <laughs> one sip of this imperial pumpkin stout... George can attest to this because he was there. My face lit up like my face has never lit up at, at at the taste of a beer before. It was a genuine beergasm. It it <laughs> I mean, uh, there's no other way to can describe it. Can we hashtag it. that genuine beergasm? <laughs> that's that's pretty fantastic. No, th- this uh, I'll I'll pull up a description here real quick. Um I I cannot say enough good things about this beer. Um it's an imperial stout, comes in at uh, at ten percent. It's made by Southern Tier Brewing out of Lakewood, New York. This is the description here uh, from uh, from Untapped. Warlock is brewed to enchant your palate on its own, <laughs> and also to counterpart our in, uh, imperial ale pumpkin. Make your own black magic by carefully pouring this imperial stout into a goblet, dark and mysterious. The Blackwater series is serious about high gravity. Reanimate your senses with Warlock's huge roasty malt character, moderate combination, and spicy pumpkin pie aroma. Yeah. Could not be a better description. Just just perfect right there. ABV comes in at uh, at 10%. You're going to feel all of that 10% as I did after, after one glass of this. But... <laughs> One glass. There, I'm just saying. I'm not saying there wasn't a second one, but I'm saying, I'm saying you you got the full feel just from from one one glass. George is calling me out here. No, no. This is a this is a beer that not only will expedite my next trip to beer market. This is a beer that I will be attempting to go back to as much as possible here in this fall season. Because again, this it's one of the most delicious beers I've ever had. It's uh, yeah, Warlock beer out of uh, from Southern Tier Brewery. Yeah, this is actually not the first time that Southern Tier has been uh, featured on this particular show. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember what the other beer was. It I'm was the sure. Chocolate Orange, which is there. Yes, it's another yes. stout, I believe, and it was it's 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 the one that tastes like one of those. Um, chocolate oranges that you smack on the table and it breaks open into slices right tastes exactly like that right so i'm not sure if southern tier has just got the whole adjunct and making beer taste like not beer thing kind of nailed but it kind of feels like they do so i'm i'm with you there i'm with you there and i think i may want to expand my not my knowledge of the rest of their uh 
their uh, their product line. Go through their back catalog. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> they're they're clearly doing some things right. All right, so we have one more to go over. As we've been doing the past couple episodes, we've been taking a previously unknown beer to us and trying it live on air. Okay, so we have one here that we're drinking for the first time, and we're it's called the Firefly. And I'm going to go ahead and pour it before it spills everywhere. And Jason, have you pulled up a description of this beer? I have not, but... Um... I tell you, the, the label has some has quite a bit of details on this. So the way we acquired this beer was from a uh, brewer friend of ours that uh, has been a big source of, uh, of knowledge for us since we started brewing about a year and a half ago. Um, job and uh, life have taken him elsewhere outside the Illinois area. So he uh, found himself in a position where he had to clear out a number of things that he had including a pretty extensive uh, beer collection. So one of the beers that caught our eyes was a brew, uh, was this beer here, and it's called Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ales, uh, and Firefly is the, uh, is the name of the bottle. Uh, Firefly is described as an ale brewed with spices. Here's the side of the label. The Firefly, an artisan pale ale brewed in the Grand Cru tradition, enjoy its golden effervescence and gentle hop aroma. Coriander and grains of paradise round out the spicy palate, melting oh so softly into a silken finish of hoppiness and bliss. Make any season a celebration. So there's some good stuff going on there. Spicy palate, uh, coriander, which we've used in a, in a couple of different uh, different beers. And uh, yeah, it's I, I see a uh, glass poured. It's a little heavy on the carbonation, probably just from the length in a refrigerator. It's got a... Could be. Yeah. It's got um, kind of an IPA type um, type color to it, like uh, light but not too light. How's the aroma? Ah, <laughs> I yeah, just tasted very... tasted nothing but bubbles, so I can't, it's, can't uh, say anything. It's very f- fruity and uh, the the uh, smell to it. Yeah, and if yeah, I did, you know, if 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 you poured this into a champagne flute. Um, it could almost masquerade as champagne with the the level of carbonation, the nose that you have on it, um, and just you know how much carbonation you have inside of it. I mean, it's just it's yeah, it's very reminiscent of that. Yeah. So let's give it a taste, okay. shall we? Cheers. Let's... I'm tasting a lot of yeast notes from that. Yes, I am too. That's almost the overwhelming flavor. Yeah. It. In, I'm not sure how, when this was bottled, I'm not sure if that's a consequence to that. You know what? That's a that's a good point. That's that's definitely possible. Yeah, but it's, the spices are there. They're very subtle. And it's definitely a kind of got a golden ale flavor to it. But a lot of those yeast notes, those esters are, are coming through very, in, in a very pronounced way. Yeah. You know, this is listed in Untapped as a saison. Oh, I believe which that. Is, yeah, it's yeah. That's kind I believe of, that's that kind of fitting. this is a farmhouse ale. Yeah. yeah. Jolly Pumpkin Artisan Ales is out of Dexter, Michigan. Let's see some other details. Farmhouse house saison aged in oak barrels with souring wild yeast. That's what okay. that is. That's what that is. Yep. Yeah. So that makes sense. Okay. So, but the, the, the you know 
we're not a fan of sours like traditionally correct but the fact that we couldn't quite place 100 percent that you know it was sour like it wasn't a kettle sour thing it was just soured based on the yeast so it's just a little bit of sour note to it yeah which actually makes it kind of nice in that you know you have that that little bit of sour flavor just to kind of round out things a little bit and play with those spices a little bit yeah yeah i agree i don't know if i could drink several glasses of this but it's not bad yeah it's not a bad summer you know summer day type beer right yeah warm summer day could see it being you know very good yeah so so if that sounds interesting check it out it's called the firefly it is sold in a bomber i don't know if i've ever seen this in any other uh form other than uh bombers in in retail but maybe one to keep keep an eye out for yeah absolutely um, George and I are going to break with tradition slightly in this episode. Um, we typically have uh, three different segments. Uh, the second uh, second one typically is one where we talk about a recent recipe, and then we would segue into uh, segment number three, which would be a lesson for the uh, episode. We're going to combine these uh, two for this episode because we have um, we have a brew to talk about, which is a first for us. It's a Pilsner Lager, where we incorporated a decoction mashing technique with this. Decoction mashing is going to be our lesson for the month, and we're also going to combine that with our uh, with our talk about the brew. So stay with us. And we're back. Welcome back to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. I'm George. And we're going to talk about uh, both our lesson for the month and for our uh, recent uh, brew project for the uh, uh, for the episode. Um, one notable project that we did um, last year was we uh, dis- uh, decided we want to make a Pilsner as, you know, kind of a traditional type of, type of beer that's, you know, commonly found all throughout the market. What we did not know as younger home brewers than we are now is the technique for making a pilsner is heavy to to say the least there's there's a lot uh there's a lot to it there's there's techniques that are uh far outside the bounds of of regular um uh ale brewing techniques which is what uh what the vast majority of homebrew projects kind of consist of um, so we decide to maybe just take the traditional Pilsner type of beer and make, you know, a, uh, a simple type of recipe out of it just to, just to see how it comes out. So we made a non-traditional Pilsner ale, which we were pretty pleased with. You know, yeah. it was, a it was kind of a good yeasty summertime, uh, summertime beer, kind of reminiscent of the, uh, beer that we just had the, uh, Firefly just a few minutes ago. So, um... Learning what we've learned over the past year since making that, we uh, decided let's do this for real. Let's uh, let's let's do uh, do this as a lager, which we've never done before. And uh, we did just acquire a lagering fridge, which gave us the ability to uh, to do so. And we also incorporated a uh, mashing technique that we've uh, that we've never used, uh, which is called uh, decoction mashing. Any point? Uh, any any points on the surface you want to? cover before we kind of delve in here yeah so the um our 
our buddy that we got the beer from also gave me the the fridge. I want to give a shout out to Dennis on that one. And yeah, I wasn't sure if we should say his name, but yeah, Dennis, th- thank yeah. you for everything that I mean, we, this project wouldn't have come together without it. Yeah, so you know we did we evolved our lager recipe, uh, our pilsner recipe rather a little bit last year. Um, the couple times that we made it as an ale, changed a few things. The very first thing we did was just 100% pilsner, and we we've made a few alterations, and so it's kind of become our 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 recipe of choice here. So yeah, so this was a a couple new things. Uh, Jace, I came to Jason and said, hey. We have this fridge now. I have a temperature controller. Let's do a lager. And he said, you know what? You're talking about doing a Pilsner? Let's throw decoction mashing in there because <laughs> why not? And Let me so. let me add one point to that. Um, in addition to why not, um, uh, Pilsner is one of the classic beer styles, um, as I'd mentioned before. And kind of the traditional mashing technique for this type of beer is is just that decoction mashing. Uh, Pilsner is rooted in Central Europe around the Czech Republic and, and Germany, and that's where this uh, this technique was uh, has has its origins from as well. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, and you know, there's it's a very traditional style of brewing, and it's um, one that is not had a whole lot of favor in recent generations. I mean, being able to control the temperature as specifically as we can with infusion mashing a lot of people think that decoction mashing is pretty much unnecessary uh there's actually been some studies done making the exact same recipe one with decoction and one with infusion that you know have yielded some mixed results as to its effectiveness but we wanted to try it to kind of figure out what it takes from from a mashing technique um and kind of do a more traditional style for this beer or this being our first lager that we've done which is also a more traditional brewing style right you know lagering itself is a more traditional brewing style so we kind of went back uh a few centuries to <laughs> you know it's it's funny you should mention that when we were uh I'll we'll, we'll go over the uh the actual techniques of the uh of the decoction uh, as as we go on with this but when you talk about uh, going back several centuries, I remember uh, while we were uh, uh, mixing grains uh, during the, the heating process, I totally had that image pop into my head of this being a project that we were making in Central Europe in the late 1700s, early 1800s in traditional garbs and, <laughs> and things like that. It really did feel like old school type brewing. Yeah. That's, I guess that's the best way I can describe it. No, that's very true. Yeah. So, and I mean, one of the, uh, one of the complaints about it in, 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 in addition to the study you just mentioned about the effectiveness of it is it is by definition more difficult and oh, yes. more, and more time consuming. So let's, let's talk about what decoction mashing is and, and we'll kind of paint a picture of, of how, uh, how it's more time consuming and more difficult than what you typically do with a nail. So um, I guess I, from a starting point when, uh, with the norm of ale brewing being uh, infusion mashing, the technique is, I won't say easy, but it's very simple. Heat water up to a certain degree, pour all that water all at one time into a uh, vat of grains, raise the grain temperature into, uh, to a certain level, 
and then hold that temperature for 45, 60 minutes or whatever your mash profile um, asks you to do. Um, it's, I mean, not easy, but simple. Pretty cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Raise the temperature one time, hold that temperature, and then you're, you're on to sparge. Nothing more than that. There's a lot more to decoction. So um, there's multiple steps of decoction mashing. The first one will be to raise to a temperature of 122 de- degrees in a in an area that's referred to as a protein rest. Stop me! Stop me if I'm saying anything incorrect so far. So yeah, no, so, that's the protein rest, the that, 122 degrees, and, and so and that's step one. Yeah, if this is for our profile, you know, there's a couple other profiles you can uh, use out there, but this for our profile, that's what we used. Right. So protein rest, um, at least according to uh, to Beersmith, um, is 35 minutes. So hold the temperature at 35 minutes at 122, and then ready for sparge? No, no. <laughs> so after 35 minutes, the next uh, the next technique is to remove a portion of your mash into a brew kettle. Yes, uh, with as little of the beer in into the kettle as possible. Yeah, leave as much as the wort. You know, the, the, the generating work behind. Exactly. So once you have the uh, the quantity uh, that's specified removed from the mash and, and put into a brew kettle, you turn on the heat. Yes. Turn on the heat. We're heating up grains. Um, and during the process, you're mixing constantly because if you have still grains in a pot and heat underneath it, you're going to burn the grains, mm-hmm. and that's not going to be a good thing. So the only thing you can do is continuously stir all throughout. Right. So when you decided to do this in the middle of July, like we did, right. it's very hot, uh, very labor-intensive work. So, yeah, so you took the grains out, you put it in the pot, you bring them up to a boil. Yep. And then... You go to the next step. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. I know, I know where I'm going. I'm just, I'm trying to think where I want to <laughs> smash cut too. Okay. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Th- then you jump to the to the next step after you've uh, after your grains reach a boiling point. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Do you hold the boil, or is is the boiling point the point that you move back into the mash tun? No, you just want to get it up to a boil. You okay. don't have to hold it at okay. the boil. Don't hold the boil. Just bring it up to a boil, and then those uh, grains that have absorbed all the heat throughout this uh, the stirring and the heating process during this time is added back into the mash for the purposes of raising the uh, mash temperature from the 122 that's still holding in its container at that time to 154. So basically, with these hot grains, you're trying to add 32 degrees of additional heat into your mash. Mm-hmm. And then you move into an area that's referred to as the sacrificate... Uh, Mm-hmm. Sa- I, I know the term is sac rest, but... Um, Sacrification rest. Sacrification rest. Thank you. I was going to say something wrong. Um, and uh, hold that temperature for another 45 minutes. Yeah. So there's, you know, when you're talking about removing infused grains, putting them in a pot, and then so when you're, you know, just a few notes on that. When, when we were first starting to stir our pot... When we first added those grains in, it was actually very hard to do. I mean, because you've got basically oatmeal, dry, mm-hmm. dry-ish oatmeal that you're right. stirring. As you go, as it gets hotter, those cell walls in those uh, grains actually get destroyed. 
through the heating process. And then it, um, because when you br- you're bringing it up to a boil, you're, you're doing a much different reaction to those than you would inside of a, a mash tun. So those cell walls get destroyed and get broken down, and it releases that liquid that's stored inside those grains. So by the time it was heading towards a boil, it was actually very viscous, very easy to stir, very easy to uh, you know keep in motion, and then add that back in. So you can't just pull out a random amount of grains. You need a certain amount of grains. And so in our case, we pulled out uh, 1.8 gallons of mash and then boiled it to put a frame around this this was a five gallon batch of of beer and a grain profile that i think we had uh let's see we had not a big grain bill only about nine pounds only about nine pounds yeah so so but remember again you're leaving the liquid behind correct so it was nine point uh nine point i mean sorry 1.8 gallons of grain that right. we pulled out of there. Right. And that was, so when we got that up to a boil and added that back in, it would add that 32 degrees that we're looking for right. to get it up to that 154. Right. Right. So if you wanted less, um, if you wanted less temperature, like you wanted to bring it up to 145 for another rest and then up to 154, if you wanted to bring it up to 145, you wouldn't not bring it to a boil in a decoction mash you would take out less grains and boil those and then add them back in. Right. And that's and that's a perfect point to cover with this. Um, the recipe that we created called for what's referred to as a single decoction. So we did this only one time. Yes. Um, there's other profiles that are uh, double decoction and even triple decoction. And I believe under a lot of Pilsners, there's a lot of Pilsner, Pilsners out there that use the triple decoction. There and are. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that process is, is exactly what you're saying. It's it's a multi-step decoction profile where you're slowly raising the mash temperature through multiple decoctions. Yes, absolutely. So you'll take out less of the grains. You'll bring them up to temperature. You'll add them back in. You'll stir them back into the mash. You'll bring it up to, say, 145. Or, you know, in a double decoction, you, decoction, you may bring it up to, like, 145. And then after that, bring it up to the 154 for the sacrification rest. And so it's, you know, it all depends on what you're trying to achieve. Now, one rule that we learned when it came to decoction mashes is you do the number of decoctions for the number of brew dogs that you have at the at the time of brewing. If you weren't going to say this, I was. <laughs> so... Jason and I do not count as brew dogs, um, <laughs> so we have just one. We had at the time just one Wesley, who is at my feet right now, and he was our single brew dog. So we did a single de- decoction for that. So. But for the next logger, <laughs> for the next logger, roll please. <laughs> there is a second dog in the house. Now. Yeah. So um, as I think I told you guys last year uh, a year ago this month we lost one of uh, the brew dogs for a nice place to brew Hilda the original brew dog the original brew dog and just uh, just a week ago um, we have acquired a new one uh, she is in the house and her name is Winifred or we're calling her Fred for short so um, she is now the second brew dog and so now if we do this again we have the option to do a double decoction if we want to well I think it's going to be required of us because the <laughs> rule is 
how many dogs do you have? That's how many decoctions. That's you how many do. decoctions so, you do. Yeah. So you know we know what we're getting into for next time. <laughs> <laughs> so the results from this were uh, were noteworthy. Um, we achieved a higher efficiency than we've ever um, ever achieved through any of our projects. Um, I can't speak to the flavor because it's still in the last stages of its lager fermenting right now. And um, yeah, but uh, we. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, our target uh, original gravity was 1047. We came in above 1050. Right. And we had a measured of, uh, efficiency at the pre-boil level of between 76 and 83, which on any homebrew scale is noteworthy and impressive. Yeah. If you can achieve 80 plus, you've done something right. Right. You know, so. so and that's the biggest uh, takeaway for me from, from this experiment is through all that work that you're doing there is there's positive reasons for doing it and and the proof is in is in these numbers right here it's definitely a tangible benefit like like you spoke to some of the potential pitfalls i mean it's really easy to scorch those grains right which will create a bunch of off flavors and really with decoction mashing because you're messing with the physical mash so much that's the fear is that you're going to have off flavors because of it right and so, um, but if you can get it down, if you can do it right, there there is some extremely tangible benefits to it. Yeah, yeah. So what uh, I looked this up, and, and maybe you know this off uh, offhand, what other uh, styles of beer out there operate with this decoction mashing technique besides traditional pilsners? I know it's, I, I don't know any of them off the top of my head, but I know a lot of them are the German style beers and right. especially a lot of the lager style beers i believe a bock um oh can, can see benefit from a decoction mash um and there's another number of other ones but a lot of them do tend towards the lager style okay okay i'm wondering if you can make a belgian in that uh with that technique i imagine you can yeah that would be kind of good yeah. yeah something for the memory bank so so back to the Pilsner for one second. Um, one of the things that we also uh, learned during this uh, this brew process was the use of um, uh, uh, Pilsen malt, which has an added value of DME in it, which requires a 90-minute boil. Uh, More I, or less, did yeah. I, did I say that wrong? It's, no, it's, no. It's DME, right? Uh, no, it's not DME. It's DMS. Yeah, okay. I do that all the time too. DME okay. being dry malt extract, DMS being um, something else, diacinol something. Um, easily mixed up in the acronyms in your mind, but no, it's actually I believe DMS okay. that uh, and that it has a lot of. Okay, all right. I can't remember where I left off, but uh, but yes, the uh, it's a. Uh, Pilsner requires the use of of traditional Pilsen uh, Pilsen malts, and with that added uh, DMS that uh, that is part of the uh, the brewing equation, the uh, the way to offset that is to boil for an extra thirty minutes. So always something to plan for if you're making a Pilsner. Yeah. So just in case anyone wants to look up the scientific whozits of that, that's uh, dimethanol sulfides. Thank you. So it can actually give kind of a sulfurous flavor to your beer. So yeah, like you like you said, we, with a, a a lot of Pilsen malt as your base, mm -hmm. you are much more prone to that. So the suggestion requirement suggestion uh, is uh, 
that you go with a longer boil to help boil those off. Right. You know, as you're, uh, you know, making ready for going into your actual fermentation. Right. So being that this is our first uh, lagering project, let's talk a little bit about what we've done uh, with the lager to this point. Sure. We can cover this in in a later episode in more detail because this is something that not every home brewer is going to do is going to make a step to to make a lager. But um, lagering is an added layer of complexity as well uh, in a in a step away from uh, traditional uh, ale brewing. Mm-hmm. It's like the difference between infusion mashing and decoction mashing. Um, it's it's a considerably longer process and a considerably more labor-intensive process also. Right. So this is one of those situations where, I mean, the old adage is by the time a home brewer is done drinking their beer, it's ready to be drank. Like that's the old adage is that, you know, then the more you let a beer age, there's a diminishing point of return there. But, you know, if you let it age for uh, a month or two after it's done fermenting and in in the keg or in the bottle or whatnot, it's going to taste better. Mm -hmm. With lagering, that gets extended. Um, So, like we said, we made this in the really hot week in July. Yeah, we did. And uh, and went through the fermentation, and and frankly, we're still in the middle of the fermentation right now. We're at the tail end of it, really. Yeah. I mean, we're approaching the two-month mark. Yeah, and and at this point, we're approaching the two-month mark. And so it's like, you know, and we're not in a keg. We're not in conditioning. We're not in anything like that just yet. We're still in fermentation, which tells you that lagering is a commitment. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> per- perfectly said. It's it's a commitment. Yeah. So by definition, it's all taking place at much lower uh, temperatures, yes. which requires a lagering fridge, as we described earlier. Um, yeah. Let's let's walk through this a, a, a sure. little bit. So we so the traditional brew day, you know, ends the same way. You're you're racking over to a uh, to a uh, fer- fermenting vessel such as a carboy, uh, pitching your yeast, sealing it off. And uh, adding it to a fridge to bring down to a target of about 40 degrees, I believe. Well, okay, so no, not straight away. Okay. Um, and I had to be careful with this one because we use lager yeast on this, as, yes. as you should for lagering. And because of that, I had to make sure um, that the beer was already at a pretty crashed temperature before I added the yeast in. Otherwise, it would kill it. Yes, good point. So the initial fermentation temperature for 14 days, so your average ale fermentation is about a week. For a lager, it's closer to two weeks. Right. um, Was at 54 degrees. So I remember what I talked about in the very first episode that we did was uh, temperature control. Mm -hmm. And so I grabbed my old dough cooler um, best $20 I ever spent, I swear. <laughs> Put the temperature probe inside the fridge and plugged the fridge into the dough cooler. So then I flipped my dough cooler from heat to cold because it used to be connected to a brew belt to warm up the beer. Right. Now it's serving the opposite function. And took that dough cooler down to 54 degrees. So then when the dough cooler kicked on, then I pitched the yeast at 54 degrees and um and and then started the fermentation cycle right so two weeks later fermentation's done we were able to just do an airlock because like like 
we've told you guys there's before. There's not going to be as much yeast action. Exactly. And it's also... Bottom, bottom fermentation. So. Right. And the, and the original gravity at, at 1050 is not overly aggressive all, either. That's true. Yeah. So, but even if it was higher, even though that's not traditional for a lager style, you'd be hard-pressed to have enough of a Kreuzen to, you know, blow out an airlock. Yeah, that's true. Um, so anyway, we brought it down to 54 degrees for 14 days. And then because lager is so prone to this thing, this troublesome little thing called diacinol. Yes. We have to bring it up from there. So after it's done fermenting, you bring it up for three days to 62 degrees. So basically removing the carboy from the fridge, leaving it in a reasonably warm area so they can it can raise itself to its target temperature. If you have access to that. I didn't have access to something that wouldn't be like 70-some degrees, and I didn't want to bring it up that high. Good point. So I actually just changed the dough cooler up to 62 degrees, so it would maintain the temperature there. So the dough cooler was really the essential element of this. It's gotten a workout in the past (laughs) two months, and so for three days, it sat at 62 degrees to to help burn off the diacinol that is inside the... uh, it's inside the the liquid at that time from, seven, from the fermentation. In three days. In three is, days. Is the rest. Okay. Yep. Okay. And then the age in store from that point is to bring it down slowly from the 62 degrees that you have at your diacinal rest to 40 degrees over the course of about 30 days. So back to the dough cooler again. Back to the dough cooler again. Right, lower by one de- degree per day. Pretty much. Yeah. Yep. There's a few days I skipped just to get closer to 30, 30 days. Okay. Um, because that is only 22 days worth of decrease decreasing. Yeah. Um, but yes, pretty much every night go out, take it down by a degree, and lower the temperature and uh, maintain that temperature in the fridge um, going down. I didn't quite uh, intend for this conversation to be a uh, advertisement for dough cooler, but uh, <laughs> I, th- I think we uh, I think we inadvertently have. We inadvertently have, but I'll tell you if if you want to sponsor on- dough cooler, if you want to sponsor this podcast, if you want to send me an email, Jason at niceplacetobrew dot com, <laughs> we'll, we will, we'll gladly talk. We won't turn that away. I'm sure. But, <laughs> no, not the intention at all. Um, but I will tell you that. Some sort of temperature controller, and like I said, this is the best twenty dollars I ever spent because it was—it's a very inexpensive and very—it's uh, entry level, but it is a good way of getting into temperature control in in a home brewing scenario. And we've so. and we've talked about this amongst ourselves before too. What a dough cooler is is essentially a switch, mm-hmm. and basically, if you're uh, if you're going for a low temperature, what the switch is going to do is it's going to uh, automatically turn itself on at temperatures that are rising above your target level. Right, which is why I plugged the fridge into the outlet that I have um, put through the dough cooler. Right. And so if the temperature probe that I put inside the fridge gets above a certain temperature, it just turns on the outlet. So the fridge is actually turned down to its lowest setting. So then it can just crash it down the two degrees that it needs to to get down to uh, because there's a two degree differential inside the dough cooler, right? Just crashes it back down those two degrees and then turns off. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so I mean, so we're at the tail ends of the lagering now, and that is a two stage lagering process. There are other lagering processes you can use. Um, 
that are more extensive. Just like with the decoction, you have the multiple decoctions. You can have more than one uh, lagering process as well. There's two-stage, single-stage, three-stage. There's um, in the three-stage lagering process, just to give you an idea where it comes from, is you do the primary at 54, you do a secondary. Um, this has it at 54 degrees as well, which is a little strange. Tertiary is bringing it up for the diacinal rest. But basically, between the primary and secondary, you can have two different rest states as your goings. Um, mm, you can okay. either have it be lower or higher. Depending on the style of beer, some of them like different um, lagering rest times and in the style of yeast as well. Okay. And then you can you do the typical crash down. Now, in this three-stage fermentation, it actually has you crashing the temperature all the way down to 35 degrees instead of 40. Wow. Yeah. So just shy of freezing, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I need to, I need to learn more about that. Not that I'm going to run out and, and say, hey, let's do another lagering project, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, though that's that's interesting. No, but I think more lagering projects are are in our future for sure. So we're we're uh, recording this on Labor Day of uh, 2016. Do we think before the end of September we'll get our first taste of uh, of the lager? Yeah, because on September 11th we're going to be doing a brew day. Um, do you want to spoil what we're going to be making? Oh, I gladly spoil. It. <laughs> no, and this is one I'm really excited about. Going back to the. Um, uh, fall flavors and the pumpkin beer that I talked about in the Warlock over in segment number one. George and I have decided that we're going to make a pumpkin f- pie flavored beer of our own. And we're not going to do this under the um, uh, stout or dark beer umbrella. We're going to make this as an amber ale. Yeah. So we've uh, we picked the uh, classic uh, flavors that make up uh, pumpkin pie flavors, and we're going to make an amber ale with it. Yeah, and we're going to sweeten that, back sweeten that amber ale as well with some lactose in the boil and whatnot. So, yep. I mean, we're trying to look for a liquid analog to a to a pumpkin pie. That's yep. that's what we're trying to get, yeah. achieve. So we'll see how it turns out. But I'm, I'm really excited about this. So on the 11th, when we do that, we're also at the same time. It's going to coincide with the end of the fermentation cycle, so that we can put that lager into the keg. So, so we just have carbonation time after exactly. that. Exactly. Standard carbonation time, you can get that done in three, five days. Yep. So yeah, so about mid September we should be able to try our oh. try our first lager and see how it turned out. Okay. Okay. Well looking forward to that. Well that's a fer- uh, perfect segue. And uh I see our bomber of the Firefly beer is now empty. And <laughs> um that's all folks. <laughs> so as we end every show. It takes a lot of good beer to make great beer. Cheers. Cheers.